The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading for today is Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all the kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight long may he live may gold of Sheba be given to him may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all that the all the day may there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains may it wave May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may peace blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 72. And to all of my fellow fathers, happy Father's Day. Um, Fathers, I I wonder, uh, what is your number one prayer for your kids? A couple of weeks ago when we were in Psalm 67, we talked, about, we talked about how we most often pray for ourselves. Most of our prayers for ourselves can be boiled down to some type of request for blessing. We want to be blessed. And I'm willing to bet that our prayers for our children are pretty much the same. Like we pray for the Lord to bless them. Now if you can remember back to Psalm 67... The prayer for the Lord to bless ourselves was actually a prayer for him to bless us by making himself known to us. And that prayer was connected to a purpose that we might turn around and be a blessing by making him known to the nations. To pray for blessing is to pray, Lord, give us yourself, let us know you, so that we may be a blessing and make you known. Is that how we pray, not only for ourselves out of Psalm 67, but is that also how we pray for our kids? Because that's what the prayer of a father looks like for his son right here in Psalm 72. This prayer in Psalm 72, it is a prayer, Lord, bless my son by making him know you so that he may be a blessing by making you 
known. That's the prayer of a father to a son right here in Psalm 72. Look at the superscription of this psalm. Those are the little bitty words right at the top of it before you actually get into the verses. The superscription says, of Solomon. Or it would be better translated, in my opinion, for Solomon. The most ancient of traditions claim that this psalm right here was written by David near the end of his life as a prayer for his son Solomon as he would ascend to the throne and become king. I think that's correct. If you can remember all the way back to the very beginning of our series in the Psalms, when we talked about the structure of the Psalter thematically, we talked about how books one and two of the Psalter track thematically with the historical life of David. And right here, we've reached the end of book two. You get to the end of Psalm 72, the prayers of David are concluded. That doesn't mean we're never going to get a prayer of David again throughout the rest of the Psalter. Trust me, we will. But this has been specifically placed here to show us what's going on thematically. Thematically, we are at the end of David's life, and this is a prayer for his son who will soon ascend the throne to become king. And what will be this father, David, what will be his number one prayer for his son? It is a prayer for blessing. Look at verse 15. Long may he live May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continue. And blessings invoked for him all the day. David prays, long live the king. That's the most common blessing ever invoked throughout all time on royalty. And it sums up David's prayer rather nicely right here. But not completely. David is praying for blessing for his son Solomon. This is a prayer for blessing that Solomon might be a king who knows God. And this prayer is connected to a purpose. All throughout the psalm, we're going to see that it's connected to the purpose that Solomon might be a blessing who makes God known to all of his people and beyond to the ends of the earth. What does that look like? In other words, what does it look like for blessing to come through a king to the point we would actually want to pray, long live the king. You ever wanted to say that about any earthly leader you have ever known? What does it look like blessing? What does it look like for blessing to come through a king to the point you'd actually want to say that, pray that, long live the king? In other words, what is David actually asking right here to happen in and through his son Solomon? What is David's prayer and will it be answered i mean if you know solomon's story you know it doesn't end well he clearly fails to become the king that david is praying for and so we have to ask of this prayer will it ever be answered will we ever actually be able to say and mean long live the king and what what does this prayer have to do with us anyway You may be wondering that this morning, ancient prayers for ancient kings. What does all this long live the king stuff mean for you, for me? These are the three big questions. I just listed three for you. These are the three big questions that we're going to try and tackle this morning. What is David's prayer? Will this prayer be answered? And what does that have to do with us? Let's tackle those questions one at a time. Number one, big question number one, what is David's prayer? I mean, we've acknowledged that generally we know what this prayer is. It's a prayer for Solomon to be blessed so that he might be a blessing for him to know God so that he might make God known. But what does that look like, not generally, but specifically? Five things, five things. These are five sub points underneath 
question one. Nobody get excited when we get to number five. Okay, we got more to go. That's my way of warning you. All right, so what does it look like for Solomon to be a blessing? What's David's prayer? Five things. Number one, this is a prayer for a just and righteous king. This is a prayer for a just and righteous king. Verse one, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. In other words, may Solomon, the royal son who is becoming king, may he reflect your character, O God. Give him your justice. That's a love for your justice. Let him be righteous like you are righteous. People tend to reflect the character of their king. You want to see who your king is? Ask who's shaping your character. Who are you reflecting? There you will find the one you follow. There you will find your king. And right here, even though Solomon is becoming king, David doesn't want him to forget that he himself has a king. His king is God. And so David prays for Solomon to serve the Lord, his king, by reflecting his character, his righteous character. Righteousness is opposed to all wrongs. He's praying, Solomon, be righteous, be opposed to all that is wrong. And not just opposed to all that is wrong, but take action on it. He prays that he will execute God's justice. Justice is what rights wrongs. It's making wrongs right. And that's precisely what David prays Solomon will do in verse 2. May he judge, govern. Might be a better way of translating that. May he govern your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This is a prayer for a king to reflect the character of God, righteous and just. Psalm 87 verse excuse me, Psalm 89 and verse 14 says that righteousness and justice are the very foundation of God's throne. It's what characterizes his rule and his reign. And this king is to represent him. That's what kings were supposed to do in ancient Israel. Be a representative of God to the people. He's to reflect his righteous and just character. And did you notice the test of such character is particularly aimed at how the king treats the poor? Like David generally prays, if you look at verse 2, he generally prays for Solomon to govern all of God's people with righteousness. Yes, he should do that. Then he specifically prays that Solomon will give God's poor justice. In other words, those who are easiest to forget, don't forget that they are God's too. Do you notice he calls them God's poor? You're poor. That's how this king is to see them. That's how he is to treat them. This is the test of whether or not a king is truly righteous and truly just. Does he govern with righteousness and justice even for those who cannot give him anything in return? Even for those for whom there's no political benefit for him to do right by them. There's, there's no points to be scored. There's no media coverage of this. God says, you want to test, you want to see if this king is truly righteous and truly just. Don't just look at how he treats the people at the top, but how does he treat the people at the bottom? 
Those that nobody else would care if they were overlooked. Does he treat them the same as the, socially ri- as the rich and socially influential? Not only that, but is he willing to oppose the rich and socially influential when they oppress the poor? Look at verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he, may the king, may Solomon defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Some Hebrew wordplay going on right here. This is what oppressors do. They crush. Their own tactics are to be flipped around. Justice is being served. The wrong being set right. Flipped around on their own head. They are to be crushed how does david pray for solomon to be blessed so that he might be a blessing he prays that he'll reflect the character of god whose righteousness crushes the oppressor no matter who they are god is no respecter of persons doesn't care how much money you got what your social standing is or any of it throw your lot in with the wicked and God says you will be crushed. He crushes righteously the oppressor no matter who they are. And he gives justice to the oppressed no matter who they are. This is a prayer for a just and righteous king. Number two, what is David's prayer? It's a prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity. I told you I'm going to show you five things. Our sentence is just going to keep getting longer with each of those things. This is a prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity. Look at verses 5 through 7. May they, that's may the people, fear you, fear God. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he, may the king, be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. This prayer seems very idealistic. I mean, this is not a little over the top. I mean, Solomon's reign right here is pictured like literal rain. It's going to cause the crops to prosper and the people to live in peace, in shalom. That's a Hebrew word you might have heard before. It's still the word that Jews use to greet each other to this day. And most simply translated, it means peace, like it's translated for us right here in verse 7. But it can also be translated prosperity. That's how it was translated back up in verse 3. Look at it. Let the mountains bear prosperity. Shalom. It's literally referring to the crops growing. May the mountains bear prosperity. Shalom for the people. This word can be translated peace, it can be translated prosperity, harmony, a host of different things. And that's because at its core, this word basically means everything is as it should be. That's what shalom is. Everything. Creation, a relationship with God, a relationship with one another. Everything is as it should be, as it was created to be. Shalom was the state of the world in the original creation. And shalom will be the state of the world in new creation. Everything prospering, everything at peace, specifically because everything is at peace with God. That everything is rightly related to God. David is praying that this will be what Solomon's reign brings, shalom. First and foremost, between people and God. 
and then it will spread to everything. Look at verse 5. May the people fear you, God, as long as the sun endures. In other words, may Solomon's reign lead people to be rightly related to God. May they have shalom with God. May they fear him, worship him, love him with joy and fear-filled reverence. Verse 7, in his days, may the righteous flourish. May people be rightly related to God and may the rest of creation follow. May everything be redeemed into peace and prosperity. David is praying that Solomon will bring shalom. Perhaps that's why he named him Shalomon, to pronounce it in Hebrew. It's just a variation of the word shalom. It literally means man of peace. David is praying for his son to live into his name. To be a king who will redeem everything. And if you think that's idealistic of David, he's only praying for what he had been promised. Go back and read the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. God promises David a descendant, a son, a king who would righteously and justly rule, bringing perfect peace and perfect prosperity. In other words, he promised that through David would come a king who would bring ultimate blessing to everyone and everything. That's the third thing we need to see about this prayer right here. Number three, this is a prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity to the world. In other words, to everyone and everything. Look at verse 8. May he, may this king, may Solomon have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's from the river Euphrates, located right there in the heart of the Middle East where Israel is. Basically, it's David saying, beginning right here, where we are at the Euphrates River, may he reign, but may his reign reach to the ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west. That's what he says in verse 9. May desert tribes, that's to the south, May they bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands, that's, that's to the north and to the west, may they render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba, that's to the east, may they bring him gifts. And just to make sure we clearly understand the worldwide aim of this prayer, look at verse 11. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him david's prayer is for a king's reign to reach everyone and everything why because it should bring blessing peace prosperity righteousness justice look at verse 12 four in other words here's why Here's why I want this king's reign to reach the ends of the earth, cover every people, every tribe, every language, every tongue. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity, that's compassion on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. 
Why do I want this king's reign to reach the very ends of the earth? Because it will bring blessing, prosperity, peace, righteousness, justice. This king will deliver. This king will have compassion. This king will save. This king will redeem. That's what verses 12 through 14 tell us this king will do. And did you notice for who? He will do it for those that the world deems least deserving. The poor, the needy, the weak, the humble. I say humble because if you notice right here, these are those who admit their need. They admit their poverty. They admit they, they got no other helper. They can't help themselves. They got nowhere else to go. They admit their need. They humble themselves by calling out to their king. No other helper. No other savior. Just you. And he saves them. Why? We're told because he loves them. We're not told he has pity on them. That's compassion. Literally, the Hebrew means that when his eye falls on them, when he sees them, compassion is stirred up in him. He looks and he feels. He feels compassion for them. And he doesn't just look and he doesn't just feel. He takes action. He redeems, we're told right here. He redeems. Like, like a kinsman redeemer back in David's day. A kinsman redeemer is one who you would rescue a family member, no matter how distant they are. If they're a family member, you would rescue that relative if they were in the midst of poverty or, or violence and oppression. And, and, and you would pay all their debts so that they could be free. You're a kinsman who would redeem that's what this king does he doesn't just look with compassion he redeems like a kinsman redeemer this king makes the lowly his family through redemption he redeems them as if they are his kin because that's who he makes them and why why does he do it we're told in the final line right there because precious is their blood in his sight their blood, their life. How many kings and tyrants have spilt countless gallons of blood for people they cared nothing about? And here is a king for whom the lowest of the low on the bottom of society's boot who is counted as worth less than the air they breathe. Precious is their blood in his sight. Love. David prays for this king to rule the world because he is the only one who perfectly loves the world. So David prays that his reign would extend and not just throughout the world but throughout time. It's the fourth thing we need to see. This is a prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity to the world forever. Look at verse 15. Long, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. That's may he have the resources he needs in order to reign. May prayer be made for him continually. So not just physical resources. May he have the spiritual resources he needs to reign. Long, continually. May blessings be invoked for him 
all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. The tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people, may the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. In other words, may this king have the physical and spiritual resources he needs for an extended reign. An extent, a reign so extended that it has eternal effects. Just look at verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. That's forever. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. David is praying that Solomon's name, his legacy, it will have effects. There will be effects of his reign that will last forever. That forever people will be calling themselves blessed in him and blessed because of him. David is praying right here. When you look at the words that he is using, all the words that he's combining right here in verse 17, he is praying that God will fully and finally bring all of his promised blessings to pass through Solomon. I'll show it to you. He's praying that the blessing God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and verse 3. You remember what God said there? In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see what he prays right here? May people be blessed in him. May that blessing you promised to Abraham come to pass through this king. The blessing that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. May his name endure forever. What you promised to me, God, may that blessing come to pass through this king. The blessing that God promised uh, in Psalm 2 and verse 8 that we read at our very beginning of the time in the Psalter. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. David prays all nations shall call him blessed. David is praying for God to finally, fully, and forever keep all of his promises, bring all those blessings to pass through his king. David prays for God to do this. Because David knows Solomon can't do this. Only God can do this. This is something only God can do alone. This is the fifth and final thing we need to see about David's prayer. I told you, don't get excited. We're not done. But fifth and final thing right here. This is a prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity to the world forever, which is a prayer that God alone can answer. It's what this prayer is. And it's a prayer that God alone can answer. That's declared to us in the benediction, verses 18 to 20. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does such wondrous things. Only God can do this. Everything David's just prayed, everything he's asked for, only God can do this. God alone does such wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's the goal right here. Amen and amen. The prayers of David the son of Jesse, are ended. The Psalter is holding this forth as the final prayer of David's life, thematically. Like, this is what David's prayer is as he is breathing his last. A prayer for a just and righteous king whose reign brings peace and prosperity to the world Forever. It's a prayer that God alone can answer. And the question is, will he? Does he? That's our second big question we need to ask this morning. Will David's prayer? We've seen what his prayer is. Will his prayer 
be answered. It's our second big question, and Solomon, sure enough, makes it look like the answer is going to be no. I don't know how much you've read about Solomon's life. His reign starts out great, even though there's some questionable stuff there too. But it seemingly starts out great. The problem for Solomon is that he fails to practice what we studied last week in Psalm 71. Solomon doesn't fight the fight of faith even to old age. And in his old age, he plummets and gives in to idolatry, which means he doesn't get to fulfill Psalm 72. He fails to be perfectly righteous and just. He fails to bring permanent peace and prosperity to Israel, much less to the rest of the world. He fails to do any of this during his reign, much less forever. And so we're left asking, will David's prayer be answered? That's a question the Old Testament is left asking. Remember, this Psalter's final assembly, the way that we have these 150 psalms put together, it was finally put together by that company of Jews that returned from exile, that are longing and waiting for all of these promises to be fulfilled. When they got to the end of book two, they're asking the same question that we are right now. Is there any way that David's prayer will be answered? The New Testament opens with a yes. Matthew 1 and verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The New Testament opens waving a flag. This is the answer to David's prayer in Psalm 72. Here he is, Jesus Christ, that son that David longed for, the son that he prayed for. Jesus is perfectly just. He is the perfectly just and the perfectly righteous king who perfectly reflects the character of God because he is God in the flesh. John chapter 1 tells us that. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18 of John chapter 1 says that he's the only one who's seen God, so he's the only one who can reveal God. Jesus perfectly reveals God to us because he is God in the flesh. He reflects his character perfectly his righteousness opposes all wrongs his justice will right all wrongs including ours the gospel tells us that jesus sure enough reflects that character of god righteousness and justice he will right all wrongs and that includes ours but the gospel includes a but a glorious gospel conjunction though his righteousness and justice demands that he rights all wrongs, including ours, but out of his great compassion, out of his great love with which he loved us while we were weak, needy, and spiritually impoverished sinners, he shed his blood for us because our blood is precious in his sight. And so he, Jesus, took the justice that we deserved upon himself on the cross. And he gave us his righteousness so that we might know the prosperity of eternal peace with God. And anyone throughout the entirety of the world who sees their need, that they have no helper, no savior apart from him, anyone who sees their need and calls on his name will be redeemed. The lowly will be made his family, Jesus' family, forever. They'll be saved, delivered, redeemed. For the day will come when Jesus will return to crush all oppressors, sin, death, and the devil, done forever. He will return to bring redemption to completion in new creation. 
And there, we will finally know shalom as it existed in the very beginning. There, the righteous will flourish. They shall have every blessing God ever promised. They will all come to pass. Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2 will be on display as Jesus Christ, the Son of David, reigns forever over every nation, north, south, east, west, and every family on the earth will be blessed through him. Shades, that's David's prayer, and it has been answered in Christ. And it will be answered in Christ. God's promises have been finally, fully, and forever purchased at the cross. And God's promises will finally, fully, and forever be kept in the coming of Christ. And to all of this, we say with verse 19, Amen and Amen. Will David's prayer be answered? Yes, it has and it will be. But if I'm honest, that still leaves me with big question number three. What does this prayer have to do with me? With you and me. Like sure, this prayer points to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer. That's awesome. And that alone makes it worth it for us to have this psalm. But is that all that is here? Is this solely meant for mine and your encouragement? And further enlightenment of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes. What does this psalm have to do with us? Everything. Because this is a prayer that we are still supposed to pray, Shades. That we can pray. We're supposed to pray. And I believe we pray it through declaration and demonstration. There are final two things. What does this prayer have to do with us? Everything. We still pray it through declaration and demonstration. First declaration. We declare this king, Psalm 72, we declare this king has come and is coming. We declare this king has come and is coming. The prayer of Psalm 72 was not a private prayer. It it was public. Like David composed this prayer for the coronation of his son Solomon. It was was a way of declaring to all the people what kind of king Solomon was supposed to be. And not just Solomon, this, this psalm actually was picked up and it became part of the coronation liturgy. In other words, at the crowning of every single king, this prayer was supposed to be prayed as a declaration of who this king should be. And shades, we still declare this king. Every bit as much as David declared it to the people, we still declare this king. We still declare, long live the king, long live Jesus. That's our declaration. Shades, declarations take words. The gospel takes words. God gave it to us in words to be heard through words and spoken through words. 
the very famous saying that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, I don't think he said it, but is preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I get the sentiment, but it's wrong. The gospel always requires words. It's good news. There's no news station doing charades to communicate the news to you. News comes through declaration. We're to preach the gospel. That, that word, keruso, is the Greek word that was used for preach in the first century. It didn't, it didn't have a church context like it does now. It's what a town crier did. It came in and they announced whatever the king had declared. The gospel is news. The fact that this king has come and is coming, it's news. We still declare this king. And I want to challenge you, Shays, to say that I think such declaration may be easier right now than ever. At least in our context. And I know you're all looking at me like, I would think just the opposite, Jonathan. No, I think it's easier right now than ever. What do I mean? I mean that nearly every single one of our cultural conversations revolve around longing for this king. You ain't even got to try to slide Jesus into the conversation. You, gotta, you don't got to backdoor him. People are longing for righteousness and justice. They're talking about it. People are longing for peace and prosperity. They're talking about it. People are longing for this, this world to not be forever just the same cycle of sin and death over and over again, forever broken. They want this world to be forever and finally changed. They're talking about it. Shades, people are talking and longing for something that only God can give. And we can declare that He has. God has given the world the king that it needs. Jesus has come. And we can declare to people, tell them, and show them how, through the gospel, he has brought righteousness, justice, peace, prosperity. We can declare to them and show them, through the gospel, how he will return to bring redemption to completion in new creation, to fully and finally bring justice Peace, prosperity, righteousness. Shades, Psalm 72 is our declaration. You want to know what you're supposed to say and declare about Jesus? Look here. We declare this king has come and is coming. Secondly, that's number one of how we pray this prayer still. This is what it, this is what it has to do with us. We declare this king has come and is coming, but second, not just declaration, demonstration. We demonstrate this king has come and is coming. We demonstrate this king has come and is coming. First thing we saw at the very beginning of this psalm is that people reflect the character of their king. If we are going to declare that Jesus is our king, we're going to declare that, then our lives must demonstrate that. We declare Jesus our King, our lives have got to demonstrate that He is our King. Our lives have got to demonstrate that He has come and it has made a difference. We've got to be a people who reflect His character. Not perfectly, but truly. I'll give you the difference. I love my wife. Not perfectly. Ask her. She, she is brutally and beautifully honest. 
I love my wife, not perfectly, but truly, I really do. We are called to be a people who reflect our king's character. No, we won't do that perfectly, but we are called to do it truly. We cannot declare that Jesus is a righteous and just king if our lives don't demonstrate righteousness and justice, particularly for the most vulnerable. Do we want to know if we are a people? whose lives demonstrate the kind of righteousness and justice that characterizes our king. We don't look at how we treat people at the top, but how we treat people at the bottom, underneath the boot of society, the poor, the weak, the oppressed, the needy, who have no helper, no protector. Shades, how how can we declare a Savior who loves the least of these? Savior that's redeemed and transformed me unless I have been transformed to also love the least of these. How can we declare a Savior who gives to the undeserving if we don't give to the undeserving? How can we declare a Savior of love and grace if we have not been transformed to be a people of love and grace? That... That would be like little orphan Annie declaring that Daddy Warbucks has adopted her while still living at the orphanage with Miss Hannigan. And if you don't get any of that, go watch Annie. Like her declaration and demonstration don't match desires. We declare Jesus is a king of righteousness and justice. Are we a people of righteousness and Injustice. All we have to do is look at how we treat the most vulnerable. That's what James does. James chapter 2, here's your homework. Go home, read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. James rebukes the church for showing favoritism to the rich and treating the poor poorly. They're doing this even though, James says, these rich that they are treating this way are the very ones who are using their wealth and their power unrighteously to oppress. And yet the church is treating them well because there's something to be socially gained. And shades, we dare not think that we are less susceptible to such a gospel-denying sin. The history of the church in our country is splattered with the blood of black slaves revealing the links to which Christians will, I put that in some heavy quotes, Christians will support unrighteous oppression for the sake of social gain. Imagine for one millisecond if the church had called every slaveholder into church discipline. What could have happened? but for the sake of holding on to power and money. This is the history of the church in our country, and we dare not think we are less susceptible. Shades, many Christians today are more concerned with how they are seen by society than they are about pursuing biblical justice. Many Christians are afraid to even use the word justice. I wonder if reading the word justice out of the Bible makes you uncomfortable. 
Many Christians are even afraid to use the word justice, especially if we're talking about issues of race. Because people might misunderstand me. They might mislabel me. And so all of their energy is poured into declaring what they aren't instead of demonstrating what they are. Shades, I feel this. This is really personal for me. I have been labeled a Republican and a Democrat. I have been called left-wing and right-wing. I have been misunderstood. I have been mislabeled. I get how this feels, and don't get me wrong, I care about clarity, so let me be perfectly clear. I want, as your pastor shades, I want to be found faithful, not to the left or the right in this country, but to being centered on Christ and his kingdom. And I don't care what that causes anyone to call me. Left, right, or otherwise. I want to be centered on this gospel. And I want us as a church to be centered on this word. I don't care if it means people mislabel us or misunderstand us. Shades, if that's the case, we are in good company. For Jesus himself came eating and drinking with sinners, and people called him a drunken and a glutton, a drunkard and a glutton. He wasn't, but he didn't waste his time trying to prove that he wasn't, posturing to everyone and anyone. He just kept declaring the truth of the gospel and demonstrating the love of the gospel. Do our lives demonstrate that this king has come? And do our lives demonstrate that this king is coming? What, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the local church is meant to be a preview of the coming kingdom. Not perfectly, but truly. We're an outpost. We're an embassy filled with ambassadors. We, right here in our community, are meant to be a preview of what the coming kingdom looks like? Do our lives demonstrate that? Do our lives demonstrate that the king is coming? We're meant to be a place that shows the world, here's what it looks like when Jesus reigns. Shades, this, this is why we fight injustice. Not because we're idealists who think that we can cure the world, but we also aren't fatalists who think this world is just doomed. No, we should be the realest realists that there are because we really believe that there is a king coming who will cure the world. So we live in a way that testifies to that coming reality. We fight injustice to testify to the reality injustice will end. And I believe it. We fight poverty as a testimony to the reality that poverty will end. We fight hunger, homelessness, sex trafficking, abuse, you name it. We fight it to testify that none of it wins. Our king has won at the cross, and he will come to complete the prize that he won. I know that in Shades Valley, we declare that gospel good news. My question is, are we demonstrating it? Starting right here, at our own Euphrates River. You remember that's where David prayed it would start the kingdom? And Euphrates to the end of the right here where we are. Right here where we are at our own Euphrates River that we call shades. And moving out to Birmingham and to the ends of the earth. We declare Jesus is a king of righteousness and justice. Are we a people who demonstrate righteousness and justice? Does it show up in how we treat the most vulnerable among us? I'll close with one specific way 
that the leadership at Shades has been trying to answer that question for the past year and a half. And it has specifically to do with abuse. Abuse is rampant in our world. If you pay any attention to the news at all, you know that the church is not immune over the past few years, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement. Case after case has come to light, and that's happened within the church as well over the past few years. Case after case of abuse in churches has hit the news. I know it's disturbed many of you. Many of you have come and you've talked to me. What, what do we do? It's shades to protect against such things. To guard the most vulnerable amongst us. All too often, churches can be places that predators know they can slip through the cracks and pick off easy prey to abuse. God put a specific burden on the heart of Susan Sexton. She's one of our dear sisters here, a member here. And she's been working with the elders for over the past year and a half. She's introduced us to an organization called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. It's a mouthful. They are the leading Christian organization in abuse education and prevention. We've been working to form a partnership with them, and you're going to hear more about it in the coming weeks and days. But we're partnering with them so that we can have good policies in place and be thoroughly trained to prevent abuse, protect the abused, and pursue justice if abuse occurs. We don't want to be a place where it's easy for abusers to operate. I want shades to be a place where abusive operations are crushed. Christ, our God, is one who crushes oppression. Specifically, if it comes to messing with little ones, he starts talking about millstones and drowning yourself. We want to demonstrate compassion. We want to pour out love on the most vulnerable among us. My question, Shades, you're going to be challenged practically in the coming days and months. Will you join us? There's going to be opportunities as grace comes in. There, part of the training is a full congregation training. Everyone will be invited. Will, will you join us? Will we be a people of declaration and demonstration? This is my prayer, Shades. As a father, this is what I pray for my children. As a pastor, this is what I pray for you, for God's people. Lord, bless them by making them know you so that they may be a blessing by making you known. Make them a people of declaration and demonstration until Christ comes to do what he alone can do. Bring it all to consummation. Then we will fully, finally, and forever be able to say, long live Jesus.